over the centuries. Many other possible identifications have been made, but short of an archaeologist stumbling across a stone slab carved with the town's name, we will never know exactly where Patrick lived. Britain had been part of the Roman Empire for more than three hundred years. By the fourth century, the native British were not the oppressed people yearning for freedom, whom the Roman historian Tacitus describes in the first century A.D. In later years, Patrick proudly called himself a Romanus, a Roman, and his fellow nobles, at least, also took pride in their Roman heritage, citizenship, and civilization. But the Romanizing of Britain had been slow and difficult. Late in the summer of 55 B.C., the British warriors, skin painted blue, were waiting patiently on the beach for Julius Caesar. He was in the middle of his long campaign to bring Gaul, roughly modern France, under the power of Rome. He had just enough time before winter set in to make a dash across the channel and punish those Celtic tribes who had been aiding his Gaulish enemies. Caesar knew little about the island of Britain, or Albion as the ancients named it, and less about the fighting ability of its inhabitants, but he decided to risk a quick invasion sure that he could rapidly crush the troublesome British. It was almost the last mistake he ever made. The Roman invasion fleet, with its heavy transport ships, stalled in the shallow water off the beaches of Dover, forcing the legionnaires to leap into water up to their necks, fully armed and battered by the waves. The natives swarmed in on horseback and hacked the soldiers to bits as they struggled ashore. The British even used chariots in fighting, something the terrified Romans had only heard of from old tales of the Trojan War. Caesar eventually gained the upper hand after heavy losses, but Rome's first experience in Britain ended in a hasty withdrawal and only a brief foray the following year. No Roman army visited Britain again for almost a century. Augustus consolidated the empire, followed by Tiberius, Caligula, then Claudius. Far from the fool he is often portrayed as being, Claudius was an extremely intelligent and able emperor. In A.D. 43, he judged the time right for a second try. Four legions crossed the channel and quickly overran southern Britain moving in methodical Roman fashion into the central lowlands and much of Wales over the next fifteen years. The Roman troops who conquered Britain were given land there at retirement as a reward for their services and as part of the Romanization process. Tribal lands were confiscated, heavy taxes were imposed, and natives were forced to contribute to Roman temples such as the temple of the imperial cult at the veteran colony of Colchester. In the year 60, the spark needed to fan their smoldering resentment into a blazing revolt was ignited. Queen Boudica of the Iceni was whipped and humiliated while her young daughters were raped by Roman agents bent on annexing her tribe's territory. 
The furious Sicani rose up against the Romans and persuaded surrounding tribes to do the same. Colchester fell to the British in a bloody massacre, and the rebels soon butchered those Romans foolish enough to remain in London. In the end, relentless Roman efficiency defeated Queen Boudica and her army, though guerrilla warfare against the Romans continued in southern Britain for years. Beginning in 77, the Romans under General Agricola conquered the remainder of Wales and moved north into Scotland, beating the Picts at the climactic Battle of Mount Gropius in 84. Agricola seriously considered conquering Ireland during these campaigns. He believed just one legion would be sufficient for the job, and even kept an Irish king in his retinue just in case a puppet ruler was required. But the troops were always needed elsewhere. The Romans eventually withdrew from the Scottish highlands and, like the Chinese, built walls on their northern frontier to keep the barbarians at bay. Peace descended on Britain for the next two centuries. Agriculture thrived, with perhaps 90% of the population living on farms. Gold, silver, and lead were exported to the continent, and British-born soldiers were a mainstay of the Roman legions. In the middle of the third century, while the rest of the empire almost crumbled from revolts and invasions, Britain remained relatively quiet. The Saxons occasionally threatened the southeast coast, prompting a series of forts along the North Sea, but for the most part Britain was a calm, if slightly backward, island on the edge of the Roman world. In the 360s, however, a series of attacks from the Picts in the north, Saxons in the east, and Irish in the west, created havoc across Britain. Walled towns were usually safe from the raiders, but farms were vulnerable. The invaders were gradually driven off with little lasting damage. Men like Patrick's father, Calpornius, may well have seen action against the Irish, called Scotty by the Romans, and told chilling tales to their children of the savages from across the Irish Sea. Patrick's childhood days were divided between his family's house in town and the nearby villa. Bonaventa Bernii was probably a typical small settlement, with fewer than a hundred houses laid out in a neat grid of crisscrossing streets. Many of the towns of Britain had grown from Iron Age Celtic villages that were transformed by the Romans into fortified settlements. Even the largest towns, such as Roman London or Colchester, couldn't compare with the enormous cities along the Mediterranean basin, but a traveler from Rome or Antioch would have found comforting familiarity in the layout of a provincial British settlement. Patrick's hometown would have extended no more than a few hundred yards from end to end. As with every town, especially in the troubled days of the 4th and early 5th centuries, there was a sturdy wall enclosing the entire area with guard towers spaced regularly on top. A forum, or town square, was the center of social life and served as a busy market space. 
It was also the setting for any special events, such as an occasional visiting theatrical troupe. Light-hearted, bawdy mime was a favorite. Serious drama didn't play well outside the major cities. A bathhouse was a standard part of every town, and was serviced by a sophisticated aqueduct system. The townhouse of Patrick's family, as did most Roman homes, probably faced inward along the street, presenting only a bare wall and door to the passing crowd. Some homes were a single story, but many would have had a second floor used as sleeping quarters and private rooms. At the center of the house was often an open courtyard, providing light to the inner part of the home, and serving as a gathering place for the family during good weather. A temple to the imported Persian god Mithras may have been located inside the walls of Patrick's town. The secretive, male-only cult of Mithras had many followers among the army veterans, who were initiated by bathing in the blood of a slaughtered bull. Roman deities such as Mars, Jupiter, Mercury, and Minerva had their shrines in every town, as did native Celtic gods like Teutates, Maponis, and Brigantia. Outside the walls of the town were burial grounds for members of all religious groups. There, families would deposit the ashes or bones of their loved ones. To read the many ancient inscriptions surviving from these British tombs is to glimpse the life and sorrow of real people. Mortality was high among infants and children in the ancient world, so that most families...